Welcome to Post Break. My name is Chris Peterson, Board Secretary of the Post New York Alliance. This is our weekly discussion of all the forces shaping our industry right now. And today's topic is VFX Solutions to COVID Problems, Part 2. And now to introduce our moderator, VFX Supervisor at the Molecule, VES Board Treasurer, and of course, PNYA member, Tamina Begg. Cool. Uh, thank you, Chris. Um, I'm really excited today. We have a really great group with us. Uh, we're here to discuss the pros and cons of traditional VFX versus virtual production. Uh, we want to talk about what's viable, you know, where one might excel over the other and the technology behind it. Um, I'm going to start off with a show and tell of current VFX methods, and then we'll jump into virtual production. Before I do that, let me introduce our panelists. So, uh, first off, we have Leslie Chung. Leslie Chung is a VFX supervisor and, and producer at Crafty Apes. She's spent 13 years in the industry, and she's worked as a compositor and comp supervisor on numerous shows like Black Swan and currently Star Trek Discovery. She served on the New York VFX board for six years, uh, two of which she was chair. And uh, next we have is Dave Esrich, his CG supervisor at Zoe Studios in New York. And uh, over the last 12 years, he's worked as a free lead, a TV, and a supervisor on shows such as Game of Thrones and Warrior. He currently serves as co-chair for the VES New York board. And next we have Dan Pack. He's got 20 years in the production and post industry, and he's currently managing, managing director at Silver Spoon Studios in Brooklyn. He, uh, they are a motion capture and virtual production facility with innovations in real-time character animation, broadcast AR, and most recently, they've built LED stages right here in New York. Super cool. And we're really excited to talk about that. Um, and last but not least, we have Robert Kaobad. He's a producer with over 20 years experience in the film and television industry, where he's worked in development and management of physical production. Through his time at EA Games and projects like Tron Legacy, he's come to specialize in virtual production and virtual performance capture for live action filming. He's a member of the DGA, DGC, and the Producers Guild of America. Uh, so we've got a pretty impressive group. So I think the first thing I'm going to do is start with some visuals from Crafty Apes and Zoe Studios and have Leslie and Dave talk us through some of the key concepts. And then, like I said, after that, we're going to jump into some virtual production topics. Can everybody see my screen?
Hey, can uh, everybody hear my audio? Yeah. Is it a little bit garbled? Somebody just told me it was garbled. And sorry, I guess I didn't share the audio initially, so apologies. <laughs> um, okay, so um, I think I'm going to start with Leslie. Um, I wanted to, you know, talk to you about, so you guys have a lot of really great talent fusion work. Um, can you talk a little bit about what that means and um, how it can help us with these post-COVID restrictions? So, sure. So talent fusion tends to be, uh, I guess, it falls under what we would normally call as like supporting VFX, where you would want to alter the performance of an actor or do a split screen that could slip their time so that their interaction can be more accurate to how the art direction um, should be for the scene. Um, and it's just one of the many ways we could do different passes of different characters, different backgrounds, um, and uh, keep them socially distant without having to have everybody in the same place at the same time. Uh, right on. Um, I'm gonna share actually some of the, I'm just gonna screen share again and just kind of loop some video um, while you talk. Sounds good. So this so, thing here from Picard is one of the better examples of that, I think. Um, you know, here was a set that, you know, we were able to put in all the different actors at different times, you know, for, for various reasons due to scheduling and just recreate the scene over and over again with clean passes and just some careful planning as to their positioning uh, in order to make it look like they were all there together. And again, using like three times and, and, and offsets in the, um, in the edit we can meld it so that they look like they're actually interacting with each other. I believe in this scene, it is the same actor over and over again. Yeah, it looks like it. I'm just curious, did you guys use motion control at all for this? So this is a scene where motion control wasn't available. Uh, okay. That being said, with some careful planning and keeping the camera move the same, or at least similar, you know, there is some room with visual effects to um, allow for some little slips here and there, as well as reprojections and recreations of the environment to allow for um, a, a little bit of uh, forgiveness in the camera move. Okay. Can you just describe really quick what a reprojection uh, might entail? What exactly that is for people who might not know? So reprojection can uh, be applied to either the environment or to the talent. It, it's, it basically involves building a, a rough 3D model of say the couch or say of the person's body um, so that we can allow for, for parallax to be stabilized and then re-added in in order to match the movement of the environment. Yeah, it looks really great. And I think that's a really great way to uh, keep actors separated. Um, and there's some other things in here too. You know, I know that these um, split screens and green screens, they're kind of basic, um, but I think they're, you know, again, it's a really great way to kind of show how we can shoot actors separately and make them look like they all belong in one place. And some of these look really great. So I just wanted to talk about, um, you know, maybe like what are some of the elements that are needed to make these look really good. So in the case of, uh Hidden, I think it was in hidden figures at the at the beginning. Um, you know, obviously we took some historical footage that we had no control over and added in uh, the the modern talent into the scene. And 
in this case, having some very, very conservative camera moves uh, from the stock footage, right. uh, we were able to recreate that with a locked off picture of our talent on green screen and track that. If there is a little bit more parallax in this, this would be another case of where we would do some reprojections onto their bodies. Right. Uh, but green screen also allowed us to film everyone separately and then apply them onto a body that was never theirs. Right. And uh, I didn't cut all of the, you know, head replacements and stuff into this little loop here, but just in general, like, what are some of the other things? I mean, you know, this one, um, you know, this is kind of interesting because it's a big, long, you know, moving, very, very moving shot. So it's kind of like, what, what are some of the things that you might do on set or plan for, um, to get a shot like this to work? Maybe you would shoot like open gate or shoot a little bit wider just to yeah. kind of get the, uh, yeah, just to get it right. to track. To, to get everything that we would need. Yeah, I think open gate is a definitely a great way to create a lot of uh, pixel real estate for us to manipulate and, and reposition things and frame things in a more, I think, compositionally pleasing way and give us room for when like camera bumps and like some camera straight striation from from the movement doesn't quite match up we can fix that a bit more easily in post and a scene like this too you know it'd probably be pretty hard to set up a green screen to cover all of your bases if you were a little bit more experimental with how you wanted to frame your your scene but at this point rotoscoping would be your best friend and we have plenty of reference now since everything exists practically on how we would want to integrate these characters to work together. So in this case, you could even, you know, this might not have even been a like necessary like separation of the characters, but rather there were a couple of different takes that were more preferable of the boy running or the people in the car. Right. So again, we could slip the timing on that or simply isolate each and every background, repaint like different pieces of the background while using a clean pass or while using some of the set photography or recreate some of the patches using paint. Uh, in order to get uh, a, a clean pass that we could have more flexibility with manipulating the foreground um, right. elements. Nice. Um, great. Uh, okay, so let me just move on to uh, chat with Dave. So, um, you know, the uh, Zoic's got a lot of like really great uh, set extensions, and there's a particular shot um, from Warrior that I kind of wanted to talk to you about because, you know, that's got a lot of elements of, you know, crowds and all sorts of stuff in there. So I'd love for you to be able to um, talk us through that. If I can actually just share my screen. Okay, can you guys see my screen? Not yet. Tell me when. Um, yeah, so can you just kind of talk about, like, this shot has so many elements, like, relevant to social distancing. So can you just talk about, um, you know. I don't yeah, so for that opening shot, um, we were tasked with recreating a portion of San Francisco in the late 1800s. Um, the hero is coming off of a ocean liner that crossed uh, from China. And as we come up high, we're kind of doing an establishing view of the city. Um, this, the practical set was actually built in South Africa, and it's pretty ornate and detailed. Um, we 
we're tasked obviously with continuing the extension because we're seeing so much more of the city. And what was really challenging and fun though with that was to give it the sense of life uh, as like a Western, we're on the water. So we have simulations that are being done in 3D uh, to marry the boat into the water as we pan out and we see more of the shoreline, we're leveraging 3D crowds. Um, so those were not 2D elements shot separately. They're actually um, done in a computer program where someone is simulating the crowd to look uh, natural. Uh, so for that, we had scans of extras that we had used and rigged uh, so then they could be animated through the crowd sim setup. Uh, we leveraged heavy use of uh, scans of textures for some of the props and placement of the ground. And that was a shot where we used a procedural tool, and I'll explain what that is, um, to build the ship. Um, we were brought in early on the show, but we were still going back and forth with the design of it. Uh, so in-house, we decided uh, it would be better for us to have some control with sliders and parameters that we can just quickly adjust and make uh, different iterations of the ship. Uh, the background, the far background is leveraging uh, matte painting, which is a digital artist going in and using a tool like Photoshop or Nuke, and they're actually painting uh, the city. But everything that you see that's kind of white included, those are CG buildings. And behind that, on this frame, that's where we slot in the matte painting. Um, can you talk a little bit about the scans? Um, how, how did you do the scans and um, yeah. um, how, so how viable are they? So scanning is a term that can be used uh, loosely right now. Um, you can do what's called photogrammetry, which is when someone's using the camera and they're taking images and we're using that imagery data to kind of restitch and recreate a 3D model from that. Uh, it could also have been done via LIDAR. Uh, I believe this for this particular show, we had scans that were produced using photogrammetry. Um, so you had actors standing either in like a T-pose with their arms out to the side, or maybe an A-frame with their arms kind of down, and you had cameras around them taking various shots. And using that information, we can capture the color information and the shape. Um, we'll get what's called a rough scan. It's a little noisy. And then we do cleanup, making it uh, useful for our animation. Um, and so these scans, like how, I mean, you know, are they usable for like close-up shots or are we talking only far away? Yeah, so all, all digi, digi doubles uh, can be used for various up close shots. It just depends upon how much time and what the budget allows for. Uh, we can create digital doubles with very intricate hair. We can match the actor's appearance, skin tones, the way light interacts. Uh, typically though, for a lot of shows, the scanned actors and the crowds are used for uh, the mid-ground to background, just for timing. But yeah, you can absolutely spend time on scans to make them useful for hero shots. Okay, awesome. Um, Great. Um, so I think uh, we're coming up on 4.15. So I want to move on to chat with Dan. Um, well, first off, uh, I just wanted to say, let's jump, like, to jump into virtual production. So there's been a ton of buzz about LED and virtual production, and a lot of us don't really have a clear idea what it is, what it entails, what it's good for. So um, Dan, I wanted to switch over to you. Um, you know, you've built these LED stages here at Silver Spoon in New York, and I was just hoping that you could maybe start off by telling us a little bit about running that operation, you know, what it takes, what's the space like? Cool. 
who's your crew. Awesome. So actually, hey, everybody. Uh, so Silver Spoon, just to give you guys some background, we are, we were primarily a motion capture studio here in New York, and we've recently expanded uh, into LED production as well. A lot of our experiences in real-time uh, animation and working with Unreal. LED is a very new thing. Um, and it's new and it's exciting and it's giant, uh, giant TV that we could have a ton of fun with, uh, but it presents a lot of challenges too. Um, and when we're talking about LED production or in-camera uh, visual effects, we're talking about a ton of things. Uh, real-time environments, real-time motion tracking, uh, real-time lighting. I mean, there's really, there's, there's so many elements that go into it um, and a lot of things to consider when preparing elements for, um, you know, it's a, it's a really exciting, innovative tool, uh, but it still requires a lot of planning. And I think that's, that's what we're, we're hoping to talk a little bit more about with virtual production, uh, is that it's not replacing any part of the process. Uh, it's just inviting more of a conversation between all departments. Um, and Robert, I uh, just want to switch over to you really quick. Um, so can you give us the sort of producerial standpoint on setting up these shows with virtual production? And again, I'm talking kind of logistics, you know, who are you hiring? What are you negotiating? Oh, you are muted. You're muted. I'm not muted anymore. There you go. <laughs> so depending on the scope, I mean, the scope is always the questionable thing, right? So are we, you know, virtual production, but let's just address like the LED wall technology while doing um, other facets of uh, virtual production. The, the thing is, though, a lot of times the studios, what they're looking for is they just want to know the cost. Is the cost really worth doing? Is it worth pursuing? Um, and, and that was a standard for quite a while. And, and when I say quite a while, within probably the last year or so, especially with the LED wall technology. What's making this a little bit different now is the environment that we live in, which is the COVID situation. And so a lot of people are looking in ways of studio-wise is how do we jumpstart and get ahead of this and basically bring work back onto the stage so we can avoid any stoppage. So the thing that I always have to look at is what is the scope? of the body of work. Do we want it in a much more immersive environment or are we just talking to do like, you know, basically process shots? Uh, and then depending on the complexity of the project, either be a big tent pole or in some cases, a lot of these big uh, visual effect laden television shows that are coming down the pipe um, is finding the right crew. And that's the challenge. Getting the gear and buying stuff, you know, studios can afford to do that all day long. But finding the right mix of crew and understanding and how to execute it is a different animal. And there's just not a lot of those guys and girls. I mean, there just isn't. And so you'll, a lot of times people try to do the turnkey operation. Well, there's, there's really not a turnkey operation right now. I mean, one would argue that, yeah, you can go to ILM and Sagecraft and that's a turnkey operation. Yeah, to some degree. But their LED volume configurations conducive for a certain style of working environment, which is lack of a better word, like a Western. But if you have to do, again, depending on the scope of the work and what the actual execution of it is, that might not work. So a lot of it's trying to get as much information and accurate information than managing the expectations with the studio. So you're basically saying that this is not a catch-all. No, I don't, I don't think anybody that works in this environment would ever say it's a catch-all. I think it can help 
as another tool in the bag, if you will, try to solve some of the uh, short-term and long-term problems that we have. But the, but it's not going to be the 100% like the silver bullet to solve every problem um, that we're facing. Yeah, so, I think that, go sorry, ahead, Dan. No, 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 Dan, jump in. <laughs> Just to build on Robert's point, um, you know, it's not, a, it's not a magical solution, but it is certainly a progression of the technology that we've been using in filmmaking for years. Uh, rear projection, green screen, uh, you know, it's that next evolution in that. Um, and there are a lot of really incredible applications to it. Uh, even just something as simple as, you know, we had a car in here yesterday, uh, just seeing those reflections, trying to recreate that in post in VFX sometimes could be just so time consuming. And seeing it in camera just work with an environment, with an asset that you are gonna create anyway, uh, is what's really, really spectacular. Um, and, but to, to Robert's point, you absolutely need to have uh, kind of a different way that you're thinking about approaching that process. Um, visual effects uh, has to be involved. There's nothing that you're gonna be doing on stage here in which you're gonna be walking away with that and, and bringing that to, uh, to final pixel exactly as you shot. Uh, visual effects has to be involved. It has to be involved from the very, very beginning uh, to make sure that you just utilize this, you know, the best way you can. Yeah, and, and to that point, bringing in your virtual art department early on, because usually one of the first hires on a project from just a practical point is usually the production design. That's one of the first key people brought in by the filmmakers because uh, they start to set the world, right? And so the, the virtual art department needs to be brought in early. Other people, pre-vis and getting into tech vis. these are all things you're building the world before you even get out there to shoot. And, you know, it, it requires a different type of, you know, methodology, kind of a different mindset. So a lot of times one part of my job is when I go on to a project, I'm trying to help, lack of a better word, the traditional line producer who is used to working a certain way. And what they always try to drive down to or dive into is what is the cost if I had to build this set practically versus virtually? And that is a really, really tricky thing to attribute a number to because again, it's never a one-to-one -one. in some cases yeah it's not beneficial cost-wise to do it virtually other times it very well could be especially now i mean take the the covid situation out of it uh you know there are just certain times that you can't go to a location anymore it might just be completely closed off uh it might be cost prohibitive but the director is in love with the location so you need to build it virtually and so this is another solution, a creative solution, but again, it's not the one, one all fits all situation, the silver bullet, if you will. Um, so I guess another question that I have for you guys is, you know, maybe a little bit more specifics, like, um, you know, who are these people? Like, who's your crew? Who, who is your virtual production crew? I mean, do you have like a LIDAR person? You have unreal people? What's the... My situation is different than probably Dan. Do you want to go first, Dan? And I can. Yeah, sure. I can. I can start. I'm actually sitting right now, uh, right in front of what we call our brain bar, um, and that's a little bit different than your, you know, your video village or your or your cart with your DIT. Um, essentially, again, it's it's a little, it's an extra crew that's running our uh, camera tracking, uh, running our LED state or LED wall. Um, and again, what's kind of, what's really cool about LED is that we can dim different parts of the screen. Um, we can really control the brightness of 
every different region and even every different pixel. Uh, and then we have our Unreal uh, developers and team as well. So they're, they're the ones that are actually controlling the environment in real time and moving it around, uh, control pushing updates um, to the environment, uh, working on even just you know, different features and lighting features as we're actually doing uh, the show. Uh, but otherwise, you know, that's that's really your your other part. Of, you know, virtual production is meant to be that kind of bridge uh, between live action and visual effects. So it's not completely changing the process. It's just adding a, another element into it to give you a little bit more control. Yeah. So for me, the team basically depends on the project. And so the, there's a methodology workflow. Basically, what's the visual target? Then the methodology workflow, and then I try to attribute the cost. So the things I have to look at are a little bit different than just who's the brain bar, who's doing the camera tracking. You know, I have to look at the LED management. I have to look at the video engineering. I have to look at electric grip, grip rigging, who's building the mother trust. The reason why is that all lives outside of a traditional um, third-party vendor, if you will, or third-party like visual effects house. And those costs could be substantial. So, you know, sometimes if you're dealing, depending on the size of one of these LED volumes, you're talking 70,000 pounds as a structure. To give you an idea, um, you know, 12 weeks, it's if, if it's a built substrate from the floor. So what's that mean? Gripping electric, if it's IA, you're looking at about a half a million dollars. So stuff like that is what I have to look at so I can turn to the line producer and say, this is what you're getting into. This is what the studio is getting into. And then they have to ascertain the long-term value of doing that, right? On a, on a big movie, if it's a big A-list director and this is the methodology that's been employed to get the project going and that's how they want to make the film, is distinctly different than for a television show. And because on a television show, what studios try to do is they try to amortize that cost, not just across all the episodes, but is there an opportunity now to amortize those costs off, off multiple projects? And so again, that comes full circle back to, I can plan all that, but you gotta have people to execute the work and that's what gets really tricky because there's just not enough people, quite honestly. And it's a great opportunity for a lot of people who wanna learn uh, unfortunately, you kind of have to learn by trial by fire. Uh, you can only read so much about it. And what you read, what happened on one show, doesn't necessarily mean it's applicable to the project that you're working on. You can only use it as a baseline. I would never go into a situation if the studio goes, well, you know, they did that on Mandalorian. I'm like, okay, that's great. But this is not Mandalorian and this is not ILM and it's all a new group of people and it's not going to be a, you know, a wash and, or a rinse and repeat situation. You know, what are we looking at? And... And it's, and it's okay in this world to say, I don't know, you know, and that's, that's the thing. It's a little bit of the wild west, uh, which it makes it fun and exciting and, and a lot of opportunity for a lot of people. So. Well, that's pretty cool. I'm just curious, um, like, you know, this is kind of a catch all question, but like how long would it take to build uh, an LED volume? And can you tell everybody what an LED volume means? Yeah, I mean, it's just basically the working area. I mean, it's almost like if you look at a motion capture volume, it's the same thing. It's just the, the working area where the screen's going to be around. And again, depending how immersive it is, depending in, on the complexity of it, if you're doing like 270, 180 degrees, or just almost, a, it's not quite a 360, but let's just say it's a two, 270 or so. Yeah. Um, you know, anytime I budget these things, I, I come in from the ground saying, you're not hanging this stuff just from the ceiling of the structure. What the structure would be the stage itself. You're building a, a structure within the structure to support all this. Roughly for budget purposes, it's 12 weeks of, uh, of grip and electric rigging just to build the mother grid. That's not counting the substrate to connect everything else um, for the LED screens. 
So, yeah. That's, That's a, lot, a lot of HDMI cable, a lot of Cat 5D <laughs> and 6 cable going on. Fiber, a lot of fiber, actually. And so um, as you just start to do all this stuff and you start to get into it, uh, it can change. And these changes can be substantially costly if they're not discussed. And that's the advantage of doing early and often discussions up front. Um, and they don't cost anything to have a discussion up front. Um, and to really dig into and to break it down is really critical. It's really important. Yeah, you know, we, if, you've seen, like, if you've seen the demos from uh, Unreal, when they did that motorcycle demo back in, you know, what was that, August or so, uh, you saw that they built a cube and then Mandalorian, they started building more of a, a curved wall. For instance, we build a, a curved uh, wall here just because it helps, you know, you just don't see the seams. Um, Robert makes a good point. You know, it takes time to build this uh, and to build a proper volume, but that's why you have professionals that specialize in building these types of things. Uh, really, the, the what takes the amount, most amount of time, at least we've found, it's just getting everything to speak to each other properly. We're taking so much technology and putting it all together. Um, and it's been proven on The Mandalorian, it's been proven on a couple other shows. Uh, and the more that we use it and the more that we, we stress test it, uh, we can figure out how to make it more efficient. Uh, yeah. and, and that's the thing too, when you don't have a turnkey solution, because to me right now, there really isn't one. I mean, again, one can argue the ILM thing and, that, and that's fine, but you know, ILM can't do all the work for everybody in the world. So the, as people start to develop this technology, start to implement it and invest in it, the one thing that comes up is sometimes when you do, when you're getting ready, a lot of times you're, you're asking other parties to share proprietary information, which isn't going to happen. And so you have to kind of work around that. And if you don't know to do that, your pipeline isn't going to really work and so a lot of times the executives will give feedback like, oh, well, you know, that it didn't work for our show. That didn't work for our show. It's like when you find out why, it's like, no, it would work. It just wasn't properly managed. It wasn't properly discussed. So and asking, you know, one party over here and another party over there to share proprietary information, like they're just not going to do it. And so you have to find a workaround. But that be, that's where producing comes into effect. So you can get these things to communicate well. Right. Our, our best advice for any virtual production, whether that's going to be green or going to be LED, uh, is tech. That'd be my next question. <laughs> right. That tech viz and previs the hell out of it. Um, you know, especially us in post, we like to plan. Um, the more that we can, the more that we can plan, the more that we can see it, even working in engine. And that's, again, that's a great thing about working in Unreal is that we could do our tech phase and all of our previs unreal and then bring it onto stage. And as long as all of our measurements are correct, it should work. Uh, and it just makes that a much more efficient process. Um, well, speaking of like the tech phase and previs, um, I don't think that that's something that the effects studios are often involved in, but um, you know, let me kick it back to Leslie and Dave um, just to kind of see, you know, have you guys been involved with that at all, or is it usually kicked off to it's, a different studio? Yeah, in my experience, it's been rare on the TV side. Okay. Am I muted now? Um, yeah, it's been rare for me to work and with Previs. Um, we have had some shows where Previs was outsourced and provided to us, and it was very helpful, uh, and it allowed the show owners to literally like 
frame every shot that they wanted ahead of time. So when it came to us, there was no guessing. There was no wasted time, wasted money trying to figure out what they wanted. Um, I, I wish we had more previs. Uh, it would really prevent a lot of the issues and the overages that we all deal with. And it would just allow things to move more smoothly. I think these days, you know, it's something that I think most vendors would be eager to uh, be able to jump in on as well. Um, as with our studio, you know, it's, it's very rare that we're involved early enough in order to do some like creative previs, some creative techniques to help really plan out the shots. A lot of that tends to happen maybe on some pre-production meetings, um, just vocally as opposed to actually like blocking it out with some visuals and with some actual animation. So involving any, any one of the vendors that exists certainly here in New York City, I think would be an opportunity that everyone would leap for in order to just help create a better product in the end, especially with all the COVID measures that are now going to be in place. Right. Here's the great thing about Unreal is that it's free. <laughs> uh, and so there's no, really, there's no reason that, that any studio, any personnel should not be learning it. Um, it's an incredibly powerful tool. And it's one that, you know, you don't need this uh, giant uh, setup back here to start doing it and start trying to figure out how to use it and how to incorporate it. Take a couple monitors, uh, get the end display project template, and just start start working and start creating. I think that's the that's the awesomeness of uh, of the engine. Yeah, I mean, like the previs and tech, especially in television shows, it, it does happen. It just depends again how big of a scope of a show we're talking about, right? Um, the thing is, though, it's not just for visual effects. The production design right. can actually benefit from it. Sometimes you're like, oh, we don't need this big set. We can actually reduce it. Because actually laying it all out, the director's like, you know, no, I don't need all this. I need this to make it look bigger than it really is by having less people there because it seems optically just busier, right? You're not going to know that building little models and sitting out there. It, you know, once you visually see it, and that's where the previs and the tech viz comes into play. So, it's, yes, it's a very powerful tool and it helps for the visual effects aspect and everything else. But it also can help just from the practical build aspect of it. But again, a lot of shows can't afford to do it. Uh, and, and just sometimes it's just not even thought about, quite honestly. Right. So you're basically saying that, uh, you know, if some of the stuff that's being built is, you know, off camera or off the digital camera, then well, you know, not just the point that, in building it. Well, not, no, not, there is that, of course. Um, but there's also just like, you know, if you're looking at a set and you're originally going to build it, I don't know, 50 feet wide, and you had to populate it with extras. And the director's like, oh, my God, I, I would never have that many extras here. It's just too many. I'm only going to have this many. So bring the walls in. So it, it looks more full with actually, without needing as many people. Gotcha. That stuff where previs and the tech, actually the tech biz, if it can lay it out really, really well. Uh, but again, you know, unfortunately, some of the times, and I'm sure a lot of people, on, especially the producers on the other end of this call, um, people just go, oh, they hear it, the second they hear previs or tech biz, it's like, oh, that's just too expensive. Well, I got a, I got a question for you guys. Sorry, I got a question for you guys from the audience. Um, what tools would you recommend for previs? So, so I see J Jim Ryder actually has a really good, uh, really good point. CineTracer, which was created by Matt Workman, who used to be a, a DP here actually in New York, is an awesome tool. Um, I mean, he really he's he's thought about a lot of stuff, and then and Matt's uh, Matt's been really. Um, really behind pushing Unreal as a, as a tool for virtual production as well. But CineTracer is really just a, a great way, if you don't have a lot of uh, 
dev experience or unreal experience yourself to just get in there and, and get your hands dirty. Cool. Is it something that's free or is it is, uh, anywhere we can learn that? Yeah, we could send, I'll, I could send a link to, to the group okay. afterwards. And, um, and look, check out check out his Facebook group. Um, you know, there's a couple there's a couple virtual production Facebook groups. Another one um, uh, that a couple other folks here in New York started. There's there's a lot of really great opportunities and resources out there. Um, and uh, yeah, I would just say I would say dive in. And then well, for, any, so for anyone who wants to do that too, it's like if they want to pre-vis out, let's say like a city, a street you don't have to have a highly detailed model of the building. You could just use a cube that represents the building. So like any director can look and get an idea of the scale and scope of what they want to do with really basic shapes. It's really just, as long as they do that, I mean, that's previs. Previs doesn't have to be highly detailed. You can go as like low fidelity as you want, but just having that there will also help streamline the work that's done later if you're doing traditional VFX, or it's still going to help if you're doing a virtual workflow because VFX is going to have to be part of the talks and discussions at the start. Yeah. If, you, if anybody's doing commercial VFX here or commercial post here, you don't have that much time for your <laughs> for prep. You're really backed into a corner usually. But even even something like rudimentary like David's talking about really goes a long way. And it makes it much more efficient uh, when it comes to the shoot day itself. Well, I, uh, I'm putting together uh, a Google Doc. You know, I think we'll try and have like, a live document that has some you know, learning resources for everybody on it. So I'll try and gather those all in one place. Some of you guys. Yeah. Um, I, before we get into the question and answer um, from the audience, I just wanted to quickly touch on LIDAR. Um, Dan and Dave, I was hoping that you guys could uh, maybe describe in layman's terms what LIDAR is and, um, you know, it's a plug and play. Can I just plug it straight into Unreal. Walk around in it. Uh, I'll, let, I'll let David handle this because I think it has more practical implication with uh, final visual effects. Although, again, we use it we use it heavily in um, creating virtual sets too. I was about to say I'll let Dan handle this one now. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So lidar is a methodology of capturing your reality, your environment, right? So it's making a point cloud representation of all of the things surrounding you. So like the shelf behind me, for example, could be scanned and all the information from the lighting, the speculative, the color information on it could be captured into a point cloud. And it's just so, so many points, it's so dense that we can do what's called meshing. And basically it's creating like a 3D model from that. Um, the LiDAR scans do have, there's noise to them, right? If they're not perfect, they're not ready to use for production immediately. We do what's called cleanup and to prep it to have it to be used in a 3D renderer. Uh, you could, in theory, take the heavy triangulated scan mesh that's noisy and use it in previs. but you know, if you have a lot of that in your engine, like Unreal Engine, for example, it might become a little heavy and taxing on the engine. So typical workflow is get a LiDAR scan, clean it up, but it's great for sets, right? So if you're on a set or you're doing a shoot and you get a LiDAR scan of the set, we could do a lot virtually after the fact. Let's say there were angles for certain positions. If it's a house and you just wanted to have an establishing wide shot of that house. All right, well, we can come in and we can do a LiDAR scan of it, capture it, and then we can do like a CG, like pull out wide, high, wide that you couldn't actually capture with a crane. It's just really useful to have. Um, 
LIDAR is really important for tracking. Trackers are lining for survey. It's like if we have to recreate moves because we didn't have any camera capture data at the time, then an artist can go in, use the LIDAR scan, align it to the plate with all the information of the camera and recreate that. And it just saves time, saves money. And to uh, bring it back to some of like even the talent like fusion that we were discussing earlier on the uh, uh, on the previous reels, this this is what I was talking about and how we would use three uh, D geometry in order to recreate certain camera moves or to patch up areas that needed some additional cleanup that we can get on a clean pass in order to create different uh, offsets within within characters and within their environments or with set extensions as David was just uh, suggesting. Yeah, I think what LiDAR, what LiDAR for real time does really well is that it gives us extremely accurate measurements. Um, and that's really, for us, a lot of what we're after when we're talking about this type of work uh, is being as precise as we can. Yeah, and actually to that point, Dan, like, um, you know, if we're working on building an asset and we don't have the LiDAR and we're just using different images from reference, a model may be built off of those images, but we didn't have the distortion of the camera. We didn't know anything. So it may work for that one shot, but as soon as we start viewing that asset from multiple angles in the same world, we realize, oh, that digital asset that we built doesn't just doesn't line up. And then every single shot, we're going in making minute adjustments per shot to make it match. Whereas if we actually had the LiDAR scan data, it would be accurate to the start and the tracking would be accurate. So everything would just match up. Totally. Okay, um, well, I think we're kind of heading to that time where we can uh, do the Q&A. Um, so should I kick it over to Chris for a second? Sure, yeah, I've got some good stuff here. Um, can we just rewind for a second and define for everyone what is motion control and how does it inform everything we were just talking about? Um, I will kick that one over to Leslie. So motion control is a, is a crane on a camera that allows us to record, record a camera move into a scene and be able to recreate that over and over and over again. So this is something that you'd want to use for any set extension that you would be adding talent to and allows you to, to recreate different takes over and over again without shifting uh, the movement. So it gives you an exact replica of what you started with. Yeah, so it's really great for layering people in. Yes. Great. And then um, a little more information around LiDAR. Um, so can you give us just kind of a step-by-step -step for those who have never seen it done or, or never worked with it? What, what device are you walking into the location with and how does it work and what's kind of the one, two, three there? Um, I think I would kick this one over to Dan. I know you guys don't do LiDAR, but you work with it a lot, correct? There we go. I saw, da I saw David about to, about to pop in there too. We do have a couple folks that we work with here. Uh, and we actually have a, a huge LiDAR product, project going on right now. Um, you know, usually it's, I, I don't know the devices too well offhand, uh, but usually the, the footprint is actually pretty small. Um, you know, they're going in and they're taking, uh, they're taking scans from several different locations. Um, it's really, you know, it's really just making sure that you have the time to capture it. 
uh, on set. Um, and then really having the tools in order to mesh it properly uh, and re-topologize it after the fact. Um, and again- Can you just quickly tell us what re-topologizing is? I know that Dave touched on it, but- I'll let, I'll let Dave, he's much better. <laughs> in fact, I, I texted him and said, he's much better at articulating it than I am. <laughs> All right, so as Dan mentioned, like, you know, the LiDAR devices can be small. They can be like a little handheld scanner. So someone can walk around with something that looks like an SLR and literally it's scanning, it's just handheld. You don't have to walk into a volume. The, the point cloud that I mentioned earlier, um, you know, it gives you this very heavily triangulated mesh. And if you've ever seen a wireframe of a video game or a scan, like you'll know what I'm talking about, but the cleanup is um, a little bit more involved. We, LiDAR data is very heavy. It's a lot of information to process. Um, so one of the tools that we use to process it um, is Houdini, which is a 3D application similar to Maya that some may have heard of. Um, we can take that data and remesh it, it's called. We can make it preserve the details, the, the shapes that it has, but have a lot less polygons. It just, it's what allows us to work a little bit more efficiently. And once we have the less dense version, we go in and we do a controlled retopolization, which is we're trying to make everything quadded. So if you've seen wireframes where it's just a bunch of like squares, over a mesh or a 3D piece of geo, that's what it is. We're trying to simplify it, um, but keeping everything clean. Uh, there are little bumps and nooks and crannies that you'll see in scans that we have to remove. So our remesh removes that. Yeah, and a couple of points, you know, for visual effects real time and working with LiDAR assets, uh, the new Unreal, Unreal 425 handles LiDAR really, really, really well. Um, but still retopologizing an asset for real time uh, where it all has to run in real time is different than obviously creating an asset uh, for visual effects. And ideally speaking, we could parallel both of those paths and create a visual effects ready uh, LiDAR asset and then a real time asset, but it is an important distinction to make that you can't just take your topology, at least at this point, um, and take your files that you're, you're making for uh, an offline render uh, and use that perfectly and have that work perfectly in, in, uh, in game. Great. And if someone just woke up tomorrow and wanted to add that to their skill set and just learn it backward and forward, um, Richard Levine just, just uh, posted a good article on the topic. Are there any other great places to learn about that or so people could be educated clients for you? What's the best way to, to get into, into that? Uh, again, we, you know, we work, I don't want to know if this is the right place to plug people. We work with a great scanning shop here in New York who I think um, is written about in, uh, in Richard's article. Okay. Uh, the, you know, the, the best way to learn it, there's, there are actually a number of like iPhone apps that you can do um, LiDAR scanning with. And I think that'll give you a good kind of first introduction into the process. Um, yeah, David, I think the David. iPad, doesn't the iPad supposedly have LiDAR on it nowadays? Yeah, I mean, I, the iPhone and iPad have some really incredible uh, in, incredible tools. We were talking about, uh, with another group, facial capture uh, and facial yeah. animation. Uh, the facial capture on the iPhone is better than some really expensive hardware that we have. And I think to the, to the same degree, uh, there's those possibilities within um, iPhone as well before spending, you know, $30,000 on a Leica or, or Faro scanner. 
And facial capture is just like the tracking of facial features so that it can be transferred onto a 3D model. A 3D character, correct. 3D character. And moving on to uh, Unreal Engine and real-time workflows, are they going to be useful for more traditional VFX and not just virtual sets? Or should we all be studying up on, on, on these things? Or what's their place in, in the greater uh, technological sphere right now? Um, ab absolutely, they will be used. Uh, Unreal is definitely going to be used uh, at some point in the future to probably replace our uh, ray trace render engines. We have been working towards being able to work in real time. There's a big push across facilities to mirror our fidelity that we do in offline renderers to have it look the same in Unreal Engine. And I think that will be beneficial to all the companies and productions involved because you're removing the one thing of individual offline renders that different vendors use different offline renders. If everyone's using a standard like Unreal Engine and you work with one, one vendor on an Unreal project, well, you can now take that Unreal asset and give it to another vendor and use it on Unreal and it's going to work. Uh, unless there were some proprietary tools that were part of it, but in general, the asset handoffs will work. Um, we are actively investigating workflows with it, but I do think um, lighters should be absolutely learning Unreal. And I think if you are a 3D artist uh, or generalist, you absolutely need to learn Unreal. But Unreal is not the end all. Un Unreal is more of the place where everything is getting assembled, right? You still need content creation points. So you can do some creation in Unreal, uh, but where I think it becomes very powerful is when you mirror, or sorry, when you marry it with an application like Houdini. Um, and I think Dan can talk to this a little bit too, but uh, from crowds to custom tools that you create in Houdini, which I mentioned earlier, which is similar to Maya, but that that has already been heavily uh, married to Unreal Engine. And my advice to anyone is learn, if you're lighter, learn Unreal. But if you're generalist, learn Houdini and Unreal. Yeah, I think that's that's perfectly said. I think what's, what's really, again, what's really great about uh, this package, at least, um, especially for a studio like us, where we try to have to be a little bit agnostic because we have to fit into all of these other visual effects studios, workflows, and pipelines. Uh, so you can create your work in Max, Maya, Cinema 4D, Blender. Uh, I don't want to knock Blender. It's an awesome tool. Um, and bring everything back into the engine and everything lives kind of harmoniously there. And Houdini. We're in Houdini. Unreal and Houdini. Yeah. What about Unity? Nobody's saying anything about Unity these days. Is that kind of just dead in the water? The Unity is another uh, render, um, another game engine. Not at all. I mean, I think maybe Robert can talk to it a little bit too. You know, for us, we, it's like the Max Maya debate uh, and XSI at one point. Um, yet we had to pick a path and we, we picked the path of Unreal. Um, but Robert, I don't like, know. And Unity is developing stuff too. Sometimes people leapfrog and sometimes they don't. I mean, Unreal has taken the lead, but that doesn't mean it's going to be the case tomorrow. I mean, you, you just never know. Uh, the advantage Unreal has is that you know more people have turned to it, so it's beginning. It, there's more 
um, opportunity in the sense if I need to find people or, you know, like Dan can speak to that, people that could work it, or I mean, David can speak to that as well, will understand it and be able to, to, to work with it as opposed to Unity. There's still people that do work with Unity. I, I wouldn't say one is necessarily better than the other. I mean, obviously the edge definitely is with Unreal right now and it's definitely the, the go-to. Um, but again, you know, something could happen tomorrow where Unity can leapfrog Unreal. You just never know. Um, game companies and game engines tend to be cagey about what they're doing. They don't, they don't like to share their R&D and boast about something until they can deliver. At least that was my experience at working at EA. You know, the guys don't really like to talk about something until they can deliver. Great. Here's a good one. Um, switching back to the, the screens. Is, is it the VFX house that is being tasked with creating the virtual world seen within the virtual volume that appears on set or are these standalone crews that are put together by the production team for the shoot? Um, and an example that kind of doesn't apply is ILM are obviously a VFX house, but they're part of Disney. So they're kind of part of production too. So absent that kind of relationship, what's a typical workflow here? Are you, are you saying the actual execution or the asset creation of it? A asset creation. I mean, that's just it. I mean, it can absolutely be a VFX company. And more often than not, I'd probably tell you that's what it's going to be. I mean, but there are virtual production art department assets. And, you know, you got companies like Happy Mushroom and some other that do it. But then, you know, obviously the VFX companies can easily do it as well. Uh, yeah. previous, previous companies can start to do it as well, third floor and stuff. So it's not... It's not um, it's not all necessarily under one umbrella, but they can easily do it. I don't know if that answers the question the person was asking. Now the actual execution of it all, I mean, look, a, a visual effects company will try to bid out as much of it and bring it in underneath their umbrella as much as they can, but they will call out in their bids traditionally, like the, the, the LED management of it all is going to be you know, a separate line item because they don't want to take on, it's risk mitigation, right? especially if they're, they're kind of new to it, they're going to push it on to somebody who has a proven track record of dealing with that and the video engineering of that, because that can get overly complicated in dealing with the signal flow of going to the picture. And that's not traditionally something that's covered by a visual effects house. Yeah. You know, from, from our perspective as the, the virtual production studio, um, you know, it, it doesn't, you know, we, we both handle the, the, build out of the virtual sets, but then we also, uh, you know, suggest and encourage the visual effects studio to, to work with it as well. And even at least, you know, preparing the asset and then we can help optimize it. Um, it is a little bit of a learning curve. It's not, you know, I wish it were just as simple as like a little, uh, a little button press uh, in Max Maya. Um, yeah, <laughs> no, no, no magical red button just yet. Um, but again, that's why, you know, that's why I say it's not, you have, if you're a visual effects studio owner or a CG shop, you have the infrastructure already. Uh, it's just about, uh, changing up the way that you, uh, prepare your assets to make it work for, again, make it work for in camera here. Uh, again, if we're talking about a green screen, uh, virtual production in which you're using it more as a previs tool, um, you know, textures and light, final lighting might not be as applicable. And so that, uh, that transfer might be a little bit easier. 
Yeah, I mean, like you could be working in these with these LED walls, right? The idea is to try to capture them as much in camera, but you know, you could easily flick and say, "No, we're going to green screen and turn them all green," because sometimes, you know, dealing depending on the filmmaker you're dealing with, and just he might look at something and say, "That's not working for me. I want the flexibility later on." You know, he's not going to be married to it. You might as well just go to green and just and just shoot it. Right. the The advantage, though, that if we and we do have a little go to green button. Uh, that was pretty easy to create. Uh, is that at least if you go to green within your field of view, you can still have the subject or the object lit by the environment, uh, which is still, you know, it's pretty hard to, it's time consuming to, to recreate uh, later on. So I think there's, there's advantages, even if you're going to use this as a really expensive green screen. Right. And, and the one thing, too, the producers should keep in mind is that your key lighting is going to be done traditional. You know, your gaffer and everything, they're going to be doing that. The DP are going to be doing that. It's the shading and the other dynamic lighting that's going to come from the LED screens. And obviously, they're, they're different. The, the actual LED screens versus the practical lights are completely different. So they'll try to, you know, color match it as best they can, dial it in on the day. But you're still going to color correct in post for that. Yeah, I mean, I, Andrew actually asked a good question that if you're going to do that, uh, will, it, will it generate more spill? Uh, you know, again, we could control the brightness of the screen in the back. Um, but that is, of course, you know, that, of course, is always a concern. Well, one of my concerns is always, you know, like, what do the effect supervisors have to look for on set when they're shooting an LED? I mean, you know, are there any artifacts that might show up? You know, maybe you won't see them on the monitors, but you might say in a color session. Yeah, John, John actually made a good point. Uh, I saw in the questions about uh, Moray. I don't know, Robert, yeah. if, you, if you could speak to that. Uh, what's the question? Moray, Moray, Moray. Uh, uh, the, oh, his question specifically. Sorry, I'm just. I, I was talking about specifically like artifacts that uh, might pop up from an LED screen. Yeah, I mean, like if you if the actor, there's usually a safety zone. So depending on the pixel pitch of the LED monitor, it could be twelve. Tell me feet. what what's pixel pitch? Just how how tight the pixels are. So the higher the number, the basically the lower the resolution of the screen is. So you have to have a certain optimal viewing point or distance for the view, which is usually further back. And so the, what you're dealing with with artifacting is, especially if the actor is too close to the screen, you're shooting too close, you're probably going to see some artifacting there for sure. So, um, so usually you try to build a safety zone, like don't get any closer than 12 feet to the screen. Uh, but of course things happen people like to push it. Uh, mm -hmm. so, uh, you know, is it going to register immediately? You know, honestly, I don't have an answer to that because it's, there's so many other variables and factors involved. So. Yeah. But, I've seen that exact problem where we ended up having to, uh, roto some people who were too close to the screen. Yeah. What was the question about Moray though? It was just uh, that how you know are there issues with moray i think again it, it depends on how like like robert was saying how close you get to the uh the talent is to the screen i think there is generally a sweet spot that you have to find yeah and, and again this goes back to not only the pixel pitch of the screen um but also you know what are you shooting exactly so like for you have a higher i'm just going to say like if you had a higher pixel pitch uh you definitely want to shoot shallower you know, the DP has to know that to shoot shallower to kind of just not have that greater depth of field because you're definitely going to get more A. And then if you go with a lower pixel pitch count, yeah, you get a little bit greater depth of field, but then that introduces all the kinds of computing issues. So if you drop down to like under like a 2.5 pixel pitch, 
uh, and get of yourself higher resolution, those files have to be bigger and the, G and the, the actual engine, the actual uh, computer rendering power is like almost quadruple. And that, that is a ton of information coming down. So there's, there's, there's trade-offs. You have to pick and choose your poison. You know, yeah. um, but that, yeah, the more is definitely an issue, especially if you get into like a higher pixel pitch count, kind of like, you know, like a 3.5 or 3.8 pixel um, pixel pitch on a LED monitor. That's great for like doing car comp shots because you're not shooting five, six down the middle on a, on a wide open or like 5.6 down the middle of a, on, a, on a lens, right? It's going to be much more shallow depth of field. So you're, you're going to get that motion burn block it out anyway. So you're not going to see that more in, at least in theory. So I have one here. Um, if a show knows it's going for v virtual sets, um, the VFX conversation will move even more into prep and pre-pro. So what are the scheduling concerns around a show that will be using virtual sets? How much more prep is needed? What, what should people be ready for? Um, depending on the scope of the show, it'd be television or feature you're talking on average. I mean, like some of the stuff I've been covering, you know, you're talking like six months at least. I know there was a, a movie I was up for it ended up going to England. I think it's not happening. They actually had nine months of prep and they felt that wasn't enough to create the world and the assets required to start shooting. So you're talking like, so if you're a producer having to budget that now you literally have to go nine, what on a TV show, you maybe get 10 to 12 weeks. I mean, I guess it depends on the show. Now you're talking six, seven months in some cases on the show. So you have to plan for that. Yeah, again, I think, I think what's really cool, you know, what we found at least here working with our other partners on this stage um, come from uh, lighting and uh, gaffing. And what's really cool is that, like I, you know, like I said in the beginning, this dialogue with production starts a lot earlier. Um, and, you know, whereas in green screen, you're often kind of shooting in a vacuum and everybody that's, that's on set, you know, you might have some style frames or uh, early renders of, of what's, uh, what the world is going to look like. But with this, your gaffers, your DP, your electric, everybody on set and your talent is seeing it all together. Uh, and so you can make much more informed decisions about things. And you know you could you could bring your gaffers and your DP in a lot earlier in the process, uh, even in even in in the phase of just building the asset, uh, because their expertise in how things are lit is what's really vital. Yeah. So uh, Richard had a question uh, about building assets in the virtual world in shorter period of time if you use big green screen. The answer is yes. I was speaking specifically to if you're trying to capture as much in camera as possible. And that's the objective when you have these LED screens so you can capture as much in camera and more importantly, the dynamic lighting that Dan keeps speaking to. That is really something, especially if you, you're shooting something that has a lot of reflections, like let's say your lead character is wearing a helmet 90% of the time. It looks like it's a metal helmet, but a visor. Uh, yeah, so that's when you really need to create those assets early, early on. But to your point, Richard, yeah, you could wait. I mean, definitely if it's going to be not necessarily captured in camera on the day. And uh, rewinding for a sec um, to an earlier question, are there any examples using crowds or virtual extras in virtual production? And rewinding that question even for a sec, have most virtual 
backdrops just been landscapes and cityscapes and stuff and, and it would be another step forward to see crowds and extras dan do you yeah we're actually we're we're, we're doing some uh projects right now with real-time crowd simulation um, you know it works if they're uh if they're pretty far background uh you you know i i saw somebody once asked a couple weeks ago about replacing them for foreground characters. I mean, you'd have to spend yeah. a really good amount of money for some really high quality digital doubles. Um, nothing's going to replace real people. Uh, yeah. And that's the thing too. So to answer your question, yeah, traditionally these were more just landscape, you know, kind of bringing the environment into the outside environment onto a stage, or if it's even, even the location, like if it was the Biltmore hotel and you wanted to bring it on stage cause it's too cost prohibitive to go down to LA anymore, blah, 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 blah. I got this question yesterday from the studio about crowd replication, because that is a big thing because of COVID and the restrictions that that uh, has. Uh, and quite honestly, we don't have an answer to it. Uh, but to Dan's point, you're definitely not going to get that human interaction like you normally get as you layer stuff just from an LED wall. It's not going to, you're, you're going to have to test things out and you're just going to have to R&D. Now, unfortunately, a lot of people see R&D as a money pit uh, I hate to say that, but that's the truth of the matter. Uh, and that's a challenge sometimes with the studio and stuff and saying, look, you know, they'll say, well, what if it doesn't work? I'm like, that's a good thing. Now we know, and we just know not to do it. I mean, that, that, and I'm not trying to be facetious in the answer, but that's the, that's the whole point of R&D. That's the whole point of testing something out to see if it works. So sometimes stuff works that shouldn't work. And the only reason why you know it works is because you did the R&D on it. Right. And if it doesn't work, you know, <laughs> at least in real time, as you know, as Leslie and David showed in the at the top of the meeting, uh, these tools still exist and they're still done really well in post. Yeah. Uh, and post is still and post VFX is still very much needed in this process. Yeah. And by the way, the LED wall technology and using that to shoot uh, and to try to capture as much in camera doesn't mean that that's in any way, shape, or form, replacing visual effects. You still have a bunch of visual effects work, even if you're shooting against an LED wall. Right. Yeah, we kind of talk, there's another VFX soup here. We talk, you know, we usually call it post VFX. In some cases, now we're calling it uh, pre VFX. Yeah. So. <laughs> I mean, the good thing is you're bringing everything for, like, again, I'm speaking to the bigger scope projects. You're bringing everyone forward. You're engaging people instead of being an afterthought because there's nothing more painful then you know and again i i've always worked on the production side never worked at a facility other than ea um but you know you sometimes hear people like oh we'll just fix it in post it's just we'll deal with it later we'll deal with it later that's not conducive with some of these big big scope projects that doesn't fly and so the good thing is a lot of the vfx houses the supervisors the post folks everybody gets brought up earlier in the conversation so you know what to prepare for and what to do it also means more weeks of work for you. Yes. <laughs> Great. Well, I'd like to do, if it's okay with you, Tamina, one more question and then move into our little um, hangout phase. Yeah, totally. Um, before that, if I could just announce uh, next week's post break, Thursday at 4 o'clock, Anatomy of a Scene, Breaking Down the Editing Process. And our last question will be, are there any different considerations for LED walls if you're shooting and delivering HDR or Dolby Vision? 
That is a good question. I'm going <laughs> to. I don't think anyone wants to answer yeah, that. That's gonna be, I'm going to have to get back to you on that one. Yeah. I mean, I don't know the answer to that question. I do know this. It, there's so many different LED technologies out there. There are certain ones that people turn to because they've been tested up and they're production ready. And it's like the de facto default go-to, right? But to that kind of question itself, that might be something that hasn't been tested out, even though people are already defaulting to these panels because they've worked on the Mandalorian, they work, you know, on different projects, you know, different vendors might be working on. Uh, and, you know, as they build more and more of these LED panels, the thing is, though, they're putting a lot of R&D in. If Samsung's trying to get into the game now, obviously, Rowie's been around for a while. Uh, you have all different types of players getting involved. But uh, that kind of question is a good one. Um, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna ask, pick that one, Mark. I'm gonna, I'm gonna ask later today. Yeah. <laughs> I'll actually send that straight to Epic and try to get an answer. I'm sure Miles will have some sort of, <laughs> some sort of answer to that. Great. Well, thank you, panelists. Thank you, Tamina, for moderating. Um, so this will be new territory for us. I think we just um, turn this Zoom room into a bar, and and let's hang out and chat with one another. And if, and if anyone We'd like to start out by asking the panelists or, or Tamina any questions while we have them, then please go ahead. No bashfulness. Where's my drink if this is a bar? <laughs> hey, David, are you there? Um, can you guys hear me? Yes. yes. All right, cool. Um, I, I think you guys have talked about this, but I might have missed it. When you're doing Unreal, how does that change your hardware requirements? Video cards, better video cards. <laughs> right, so, so do, does that then um, make it so that, um, like as we're all moving to this cloud-based kind of rendering stuff for, for CG, does that, does AWS have a setup that would support Unreal like it does the, the renders that we do currently? I'm, I'm not even, I'm not familiar with them having that set up. Yeah, like I'm not aware of AWS, but like they may have GPU farms that you can leverage, but offhand I'm not aware of it. I know like internally though, our machines need to be updated to take advantage of ray tracing within Unreal. Um, right. A lot of the low-end quadro cards that a lot of visual effects studios like to default to, they are not even close to being optimal. You're right. better off going to Best Buy, Micro Center, and picking up like a mid-level gaming card, and it'll outperform most of the video cards that we're using in VFX shops. Yeah, because what, what I'm seeing is like finally getting away from buying hardware, and I'm like, oh, we're going to have to invest in hardware again. Yeah, G GPU investment is... It's not only useful for Unreal Engine, but for, um, uh, for simulations too. Um, a lot of simulations can be run on GPU. It just processes information more efficiently than traditional CPUs that you have in computers. So um, regardless, you're gonna need to update your GPUs whether you go to Unreal or not. Yeah, it's a, it's a good question, Andrew. I was just actually just sidelining, sidetracking, talking to um, our engineer about that. Uh, yeah, I think they're, yeah, everything David said. And David, we'll talk um, about it when you come next week. 
This is um, just another observation regarding hardware rendering. Um, and it's not going to be a perfect pixel perfect color match because there's always going to be inherent um, uh, floating point or precision inaccuracies, even if it's like very, very similar hardware. It's just the inherent nature. It's forgivable for the most part, but it will have to come into play when you're making your hardware choices as to, you know, aligning all of your CPUs and GPUs to be of a very similar generation so that you can get somewhat of predictable uh, inaccuracy as far as hardware precision goes, but going between two different vendors, two different brands and all that, that's going to come into play. Um, so that's another consideration. That's a very good point. We, we talked about that when we were first setting up the wall. Obviously, we were looking at a what we were hoping was a more cost-effective way of doing it. Um, but, uh, but ultimately, you know, for us, it, it made more sense after talking to the folks at NVIDIA of keeping everything the same. Uh, you know, this is all running on, uh, Quadro 8000s, um, you know, really top of the line, but, you know, again, in a production setting, when you're spending a lot of money, uh, you need that reliability. Dan, so when you are setting up like testing an environment in engine, there's an artist creating that first, but then like you're using a separate setup to be able to push all that info and have it sync with the camera moves to the LEDs. Like what's a bare minimum for just the, the workstation where you're testing out the, uh, the game engine before it's going to the LED? Like how big of a, or how yeah. heavy of a machine are you working on? Yeah, don't use a Mac. The first, somebody, somebody, somebody asked the question first. They said, what, what is the best, um, on one of these Facebook groups, what is the best Mac to use for virtual production? Somebody wrote back a PC. Um, so that's first. Um, again, I, I'd have to toss it to our developers here to give you the best spec, and we can probably just send a little note afterwards. But, uh, you know, the 2080 cards from, from NVIDIA are, are relatively inexpensive right now. Um, so I would definitely recommend uh, picking one of those up if you're going to get really heavy into into this. Uh, but you know, for for this type of stuff, you don't really need the quadro cards unless you're going to be doing client-facing work. How many cards per machine do you usually use? Um, we can get into that a little bit after. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know if, my, if our developers want us want me revealing all the secrets. Um, oh, okay. Gotcha. And are you saying not to use a Mac because you're too locked into their configs and a, and a Windows machine is more customizable? Or? Yeah. I mean, I think generally speaking, we've also just noticed that it just personally uh, as the, you know, producer uh, trying to run even twin motion on my, on my, uh, on my Mac, it doesn't really like that too much, but. Also Mac doesn't support NVIDIA. Right. right. Yeah. Not anymore. Wait, Dan, can you tell me what's uh, what Twin Motion is again? That's like a, another previsy type of program. Yeah, it's right? a, well, no, Twin Motion is a as a architectural tool for Unreal. Oh, right. It's a um, again, it, it's in my opinion, if if you're not a modeler uh, and you're trying to learn how to um, uh, you know how to use the engine or how to use t uh, tools like that, it's a really great way to get into um, into learning the engine. Uh, for us, it was just a good way for me to figure out a new layout for the kitchen. So, hey Jim, 
The, that software that you recommended, have you used that for a project? And if so, like how did you use it? Are you talking about Cinetracer? Yes, yes. I, I haven't used it on a project. I've just been, you know, using the last few months to drill down on, on what's out there. And, uh, and, you know, like people have mentioned before, Matt Workman is, uh, he's like knee deep in virtual production and virtual cinematography. It's like, so, so when, you know, there was the idea of using Unreal uh, directly uh, and getting into some previs stuff using that directly because you can do, you know, more interactive previs uh, in Unreal. And then, you know, Matt basically made a, an off-the-shelf product uh, to do this that sort of incorporates, you know, real-world camera gear. Um, it's still, I, I think even he says it's not, it's not, uh, it's still early release. Um, and you know, I don't know if it's uh, quite friendly enough uh, to, you know, put in front of a DP, but he's working on all this stuff of like, you know, here's, here's these, uh, you know, pan and tilt wheels incorporated into Cinetracer. Here's, uh, you know, a camera with a, vi here's a, you know, a shoulder rig with a Vive, HTC Vive tracker on it. And I can be doing, you know, uh, live, uh, live previs and it's all pumping right into Cinetracer. So, uh, I mean, it's totally something you could use on a job. I just haven't okay. used it on a job yet. So do you think, is this heading to a place where there's a lot of investment in previs, but then the, like what started in previs just kind of continues throughout. And then like this project file would be handed off along the way. Like, yeah, that's, how, that's how we, that's how we see it. Um, you know, uh, you know, obviously there's, there's, certain like robert was talking about certain ip uh issues sometimes um but you know even if we're not necessarily just supplying the unreal file uh if we're tracking the camera here uh during the shoot you know you should absolutely be repurposing that data later on in post right. so because that's where aces kind of falls apart right is is the ip from the a lot of the camera manufacturers and then not willing to hand out and this information yeah i mean I, I i think there's a lot of work that still needs to be made uh in terms of uh in terms of not restricting that camera data um and because there's a lot just a lot of useful information that 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 we can repurpose in post or in real time hopefully hopefully that those those uh guardrails will come down Speaking of which, I got a question for Mr. Dan Pack. How's it I going, man? Talking. Who's, who's saying that? This is Corey. Oh, hey, Corey. <laughs> <laughs> um, you'd mentioned that, uh, oh, did I just go, oh, never mind. Uh, that you had a car on set yesterday. And, I, and I'm assuming you didn't bring that out yourself. Uh, well, that, that was donated by uh, uh, visual effects supervisor, great Mark Russell. Nice. Beautiful Corvette. Woohoo! But like the physicality of it, like I'm assuming that you weren't by yourself, socially distancing with no one. Um, I'm, I'm, sh I'm sure you, you could do it, but uh, if you're working with other people, can you talk at all about uh, what precautions you're having to do working with people like live on set right now in this uh, in this mess? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, 
you know, obviously everybody here, there's really nobody else in the studio now. Uh, you know, everybody is, is um, messed up. Uh, you know, obviously talent, this is something we talk about all the time. Like, should, should talent be wearing masks? Uh, would that be more socially appropriate? Um, you know, most producers of other shows we talk about are, you know, talking about a time that if you're shooting now, you might be at a time later on where masks are not relevant anymore. Um, again, I think what's, what's great about LED uh, is that because we're getting so much of this lighting from these panels, adjusting the lights could be done a hundred feet away at the brain bar instead of by a gaffer uh, or electrician or best way or whatever, right, um, right on set. Yeah. I mean, just to kind of add, add to that, at least make sure, um, this is comes up with the studio all the time, right? So there is a pervasive belief that sometimes people feel by using the led wall technology, you're reducing the footprint on stage of the number of people that's required. That, that simply isn't necessarily true. Um, so there are so many different regulations going on. The studios are putting into place everything they can to try to protect the health and well-being, and not only the crew members, but ultimately it comes down to the talent. Are they willing to get out there without a mask on? Because that's how they have to be filmed, right? And so, you know, you don't necessarily have less people out there because of the LED wall technology or using Unreal or using any of this stuff. But the idea is, so the biggest thing is to try to stop a work uh, stoppage, basically being out on location, traveling with a bunch of people. Now you still might have to have a small crew travel to do photogrammetry and visual, you know, virtual art department scouting tools and stuff like that to bring in the real environment. But actually on the stage itself, there are all kinds of things they put into place that have nothing to do with LED wall technology. Like so only certain people can get onto the set, only certain people have access to all the different departments. And then which in each department themselves, either be hair, makeup, wardrobe, props, whatever, they'll be restricted. And they have a, usually, depending on the studio, depending on the project, they have a color code key system. Certain colors allow you certain access and certain colors don't. But as we know, and I've, I've dealt with a million shows, there's always one person who thinks the rules don't apply to them. There's always that one person. I don't know if it's a grip, gaffer, whoever, you know, whoever it is, and it's gonna shut everything down. Because someone's gonna see something they don't like or as me as a EPM, God forbid, I see somebody do that, you're going to be forced to terminate the person. Because if you don't, then all these issues of liability came up. Did you do what you could do? Did you do everything to protect the health and the well-being of the crew? So even though Dan and I might be shooting, and again, shooting a commercial, shooting a test, something like that, yeah, you could reduce the footprint, no problem. But uh, you, know, you just have to use common sense and try to do your best to put, a, put in a position what the protocols are going to be. And every studio has somewhat of an idea what they want to do having worked with the unions. But again, each state's different as well too. So they're trying to just do their best. Right now there's a lot of unknowns. Yeah, I mean, you know, obviously, you know, if you're doing more like just performance capture or motion capture, um, you know, you don't want to obviously risk your talent. If you're doing any type of stunt work or dancing or anything like that, give your talent more breaks. Uh, as much as you can, you know, it's um, certainly a consideration. I think one that we're all trying to feel our way through. Uh, but the best thing we can do is just be understanding of, uh, of anybody feeling that, you know, they're taking a risk or anything like that. Well, the vantage I mean, of cap capture, if they're not facial capture, you can just mask them up, you know, still you want to keep safe distance. You know. Yeah, that's definitely, that's definitely the perk of mocap. 
Um, you, I mean, using example, using like yesterday as an example, can you like talk through what it took for people to arrive on set? Did you guys have to do any like previous testing? Um, as people showed up, like when you talk about the brain bar, like is is it set up in a traditional sense, or did you guys have to set up barriers? Like, how, how's all that working out for you? Yeah, so our brain bar is set up um, uh, about oh, I guess about a hundred feet away from uh, from the panels itself. Uh, and again, we just maintain we maintain social distancing between uh, the people that are back there. Um, you know, I think. Uh, you know, like like we said, we, we try to keep the people that have to be on set uh, on set, but just you know socially distant from each other. As on, on another part, is uh, are, are you guys doing it like much like remote support for operators that may not need to be on set, like for people that can kind of remote in and operate some of these some yeah, of these you probably uh, you could home? probably you could probably see a little tiny pixel, which probably is a tiny pixel in there, uh, but that's our uh, developer leaving the team viewer icon up there. So if, uh, ah, definitely so they're promoting. remoting in. <laughs> Def- nice. It's, I mean, it's, uh, it's definitely a concern, uh, yeah. especially with people traveling all, all across the place. Um, we've got a little uh, double robotics robot so that our developer can just tap in and, uh, and just see what's going up on the screen. Uh, team viewer in, you know, I think that's, that's what's great kind of, about things now is that the technology is in a place that you could essentially run this remotely. You'll need always somebody here uh, to just make sure that everything is working, but yeah. That's cool. Again, I would, one thing, I know we only have a few minutes left, uh, I'm not trying to just plug our stage here, but anybody who's interested in this specifically, you know, we're all about democratizing access to this. You don't have to be ILM, you don't have to be Mandalorian uh, to check this out uh, and to use it. I I firmly believe that the adoption of this type of technology will only come from more people using it. And so that's what we aim to do. Come check it out, play with our toys um, and see if if it's something you need. And if it's not, you know, again, there's so many other tools in the virtual production toolbox that are still useful and practical for application. And Dan, I just want to like to piggyback off that. Um, I think a lot of companies are now focusing on virtual production and they're forgetting some of the techniques that they can do to provide safe shooting with social distance, leveraging traditional VFX. there was a shot on one of the reels that Tamina played earlier in Game of Thrones where they're in the library of the Citadel. And if a director and everyone are thinking about the composition of their shots, you look at that shot, you can literally break that shot into segments. You had an actor on the screen right that had no involvement with some of the hero actors. That could have been shot on its own. Yeah, it requires more setup times, but you can shoot these characters independently, fill up background, you can shoot them layered still and uh, do a lot of like safe shooting and safe practices. So a concern that I have that everyone's like, virtual production, we're racing forward with this is, well, there's still a lot of cheaper alternative techniques that they can still leverage and rely on and provide safe shooting. So I'm just like hoping that everyone remembers like this, this is a great new tool and I'm excited to learn it, but there's also like proven methodologies that will allow productions to immediately shoot without the need of waiting to rent space for like a wall. Totally. Uh, I mean, we're, we're always happy to take your money. 
Um, but, <laughs> I remember that. Like, but if you're if you're shooting an interior of a living room um, and there's no windows or anything like that, uh, maybe just go shoot in a living room. Yeah. So. I have and also with enough call. time and money, it can all be yeah. added in. <laughs> oh yeah. Sorry, I have to jump here. I have a conference call. Um, thank you very much, everyone. Thank you, Robert, for joining us. It was very insightful. You're welcome. Very helpful for us. Bye. Thank you, everyone. This has been great. Absolutely. Did everyone start in visual effects? Did anybody come from production or editorial or just? I'm just kind of curious. Uh, like the general group or the panelists? Oh, anyone. I mean, I'm well. I'm mostly for the panelists, but I'm, I'm mostly curious how you got to where you are. Uh, if you want, if you want to share the story. Well, yeah. well, I think I'll just because Rob just took off, but uh, I think Rob has always been in production. It okay. sounds like. And uh, yeah, Dan. Oh, you yeah, I, I started in commercial production, then worked at an ad agency as a producer, then in previs for a number of years, um, and then you know, starting Silver Spoon about five, six years ago, uh, it was started to be a resource for the um, New York production community here. Uh, there was no motion capture, really, some motion capture before, um, but nothing as commercially available. And, um, you know, not knocking LA, because um, I know there's some LA folks on here too. Uh, but, you know, we'd, our mission is really to show that there's a great work that's being done in here in New York, um, great facilities, uh, great people, um, and great resources. And we just want to open that up to everybody. Thank you. Yeah, I definitely had, uh, I don't know, like a different approach. My background was economics and finance, and I used to work on Wall Street for about seven years before transitioning into the related. <laughs> Could you guys hear me? I can hear you. I heard it, but I want to hear it again. Oh, yeah, so, no, I started, <laughs> One more time. Talk about Wall Street. I started on Wall Street, and then I used the crash in 2008. I started doing 3D freelance on the side in about 2006. And then when the economy and everything crashed in 2008, I was, I was fortunate, unfortunate to be working at Lehman Brothers. And... Uh, it, though, it gave me the push and the drive to kind of see what else is out there. Really cool. Very cool. Leslie, you're up. Oh, <laughs> man. Mine isn't very interesting. I, I started on a computer on the vendor side, and I, I am still here in front of a computer. <laughs> I, I, stuck to, I stuck to what I started with. <laughs> well, I wish I did that. I, I had a zigzaggy path. I, I started in um, – I mean, I – studied audio engineering, believe it or not. And then um, I ended up, uh, there were no visual effects programs at the time when I was going to school. So I double majored in film and computer science. And because it was just easier to get a job as a programmer, that's what I did for a bunch of years. <laughs> but um, I hated it. So, <laughs> you know, I had to do something creative. So I moved on to get into visual effects. And when you guys uh, started in visual effects, where did you start? Well, I went to grad school and uh, I went to grad school at NYU, part of the Cato program. And just, I mean, I literally went there because I figured the teachers would probably be embedded in the city and they were. 
So I was able to get an internship at PSYOP and Mass Market. Um, and I literally met all of my friends through there. And from there, then I just started working at, I think my next job was The Mill, and then Framestore, and then MPC, and then just kind of cascade. I'd say for me, I think a good, a good majority of like my foundational like friendships and like career relationships too were also like started over at uh, PSYOP, which you know, was my first job after an internship during school. Um, I went to the School of Visual Arts and then, yeah, internship at PSYOP that led to a job on graduation and then led to almost everybody I know somehow. I mean, it's kind of how we became friends. It's totally how we, we had, we had, we had two circles of overlapping friends. <laughs> All PSYOP related too. All PSYOP related. We just <laughs> like got to talking the good old fashioned way that people meet at a bar, I think. <laughs> I, I got lucky, I think. Um, I did not go to school for this. Uh, so I spent a lot of time training at home, just doing online tutorials, uh, getting, I still used books at the time that people would actually read books to learn this stuff. Um, and I just built a personal portfolio and I started reaching out to all the studios that I heard people mention in New York. And I just wanted to get my name out there and no one responded. No one got back to me. And I just kept pushing harder and harder and it, figured at some point something's got to give. And I was literally about to give up and just go, all right, I'm not going to do this when we go back to finance. And um, I felt that my reel was good enough. And I called a company called Look Effects, And they were based in Williamsburg at the time. They had a, their LA office as well. And they brought me in the next day. And I sat down, I spoke to them. And we started where I was an intern. And that quickly turned into a permalance position. And it was great. So I was freelancing there for months and months at a time. Then I would leave for maybe a few weeks and then go back. Uh, it was a really good opportunity, but it exposed me to um, different production techniques where I got to work remotely with some of the people in Vancouver. And it just was like things that I never would have had my hands on at any of the other shops in New York. And I felt like that was where I got lucky and it just propelled me and gave me extra knowledge that it would have taken years for me to get. Thank you so much. I, I'm just yeah. I, I'm always so fascinated to hear people's story. Um, I'm, I'm a post supervisor, but I was working at a doctor's office and oh. I trying for three years. I, had, I didn't go to um, film school at all. I just went to school that had a communications department, but I was working at a doctor's office as a receptionist, not even related to film. And the, um, the nurse asked me, what do you really want to do? Because clearly you don't want to learn the trade and you don't like being around blood and needles. And so I told her I want to work in film or TV, but I don't know how I've been sending my resume. I've been knocking on doors. I've been calling and nobody ever calls me. And she told me, she's like, my husband works in music or sound. I don't know what he does. He does something in film. And she introduced me to Mariusz Grabinski, who is a who was music supervisor with Sound One. So... I always just find this so fascinating, just hearing everybody's story of how you get to where you are. Sometimes it's, it's the weirdest transactions and you just talk to people that you don't even realize and they really help. So I just find it fascinating. So thank you. <laughs> yeah, thanks for sharing. Yeah, just one point I wanted to make before, I, I know we're running out of time. Um, the, uh, I know we've talked a lot about visual effects in, in virtual production. I did just want to add, virtual production is very uh, all-encompassing. So editors, editorial, sound, color, uh, these are all still vital, vital roles in, in this. 
Um, and I know we didn't really touch on it. I'm happy to touch on it separately uh, later on. Um, but uh, everybody should be should be learning how to how to integrate this into their pipeline somehow. Yeah, maybe we can have more panels on this. I was going to say, it's, I suspect we'll be talking a lot about virtual yeah. sets in the future. Um, There's so much sure. going on. Cool. Anyone using AI yet? Says George. We use we use AI in some of our um, uh, broadcast AR production, but uh, but not as much here. Oh yeah, I never got to ask you about that. I was so curious about like how is it being used in broadcast. Uh, <laughs> yeah, again, there's you know yeah if 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 there are people that do broadcast here, there's you know you're probably seeing more uh, broadcast AR. Um, you know, there's there's applications of this technology across all these different industries here in New York, and even in uh, fashion, using this and live music and live entertainment. Um, there's it's just cool. Again, I feel like we're in this really, really awesome moment um, in uh, in post right now, uh, where where we're bringing kind of brought more into. Um, all these different ways of telling stories and of, uh, of doing events. Well, great. Cool. This was fantastic. Thank you everyone for hanging out later for kind of this informal portion of the evening. Um, all the panelists, you've been super generous with your time. Tamina, this was awesome. And thanks to all, all of our attendees. Um, and so now maybe we should, um, we should cut it and go pour ourselves a drink for real. <laughs> thanks for ours too far away. Thanks, Great job, everyone. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone. Great panel. This was great. Thank you guys so much. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye. Bye.